So Christopher is a person that's been investigating uh, the paranormal for a very long time. He's very well known. Uh, you would have heard of him by now and probably heard about him from other TV shows been on Mysterious Valley uh, trilogy. Uh, this is a book series that uh, he's written. And he's also written a book called Stalking the Herd, which is literally the Bible on cattle mutilation. Uh, he's been investigating that long uh, that he has enough information to really kind of build this comprehensive look at behind the phenomenon. And that's really, as investigators, uh, what we should thrive towards. And of course, there's many branches in ufology, and you can't focus on every single one. You do have to pick and choose. In this case, Christopher O'Brien has uh, selected the cows. And uh, now he's on to other stuff as well now, but uh, that's primarily where his interests uh, began, of course, in 1992. So I'm just going to ask you about the book. Uh, what was your concept behind the book? Who did you think was going to read this? Uh, well, I didn't think very many people were going to read it at all. Uh, I didn't really write it to, you know, to write a bestseller. Um, I could have picked, a, you know, Trump's affairs or, uh, you know, the, the Me Too uh, scandals or something salacious that, uh, you know, is more current and, um, and, and not as uh, uh, disturbing and spooky. Uh, it, it would sell a lot more books. So yeah, right. <laughs> Let me put the kibosh on that. I did not write Socking the Herd this, to, to have it as a New York Times bestseller. I wrote it because I was the only one that really was positioned and had access to the amount of data that it would take to do a, a comprehensive, almost a casebook study of the um, unexplained livestock death phenomenon. But I also, um, I really tried as best I could to provide a, um, a history and a cultural and subcultural context uh, with, within which to bounce the mutilation mystery, which is more of a modern uh, phenomenon, bounce that um off the relationship that we have with cattle. Uh, our relationship goes back to some of the earliest known uh, attempts at, at um, artistic depictions by man uh, 35,000 years ago uh, in Altamira and a little, not quite as far back in uh, Lascaux and, and um, the Tassili frescoes. Some of the very first images ever drawn by humans were bovines. Um, of course, what they were drawing was a wild form of what we now consider to be cattle. Um, these are these are much larger animals. They were called aurochs. Um, they could go up to twelve feet at the shoulder, weigh three thousand thirty five hundred pounds. Um, these are the animals that uh, <laughs> primitive man uh, you know, twelve thousand five hundred years ago would capture their babies and attempt to contain the animals and um, selectively breed them and domesticate them. Cattle are one of the first domesticated uh, animals, and I think I think sheep may have been domesticated uh, sooner. But uh, let's put it this way: cattle have been um, utilized by humans for um, close to twelve thousand years, and uh, I feel that you can't really look at the mutilation phenomenon unless you have a pretty good understanding, or at least an awareness of our long, sacred, and exalted relationship with bovines. Um, I think it's very important. Uh, one can't be uh, addressed without the other. When it comes down to the uh, ranchers themselves, that's got to also be part of their culture, or at least a subculture that we, the general public, aren't really privy to. Like This has got to be something that's fairly dominant for a person like yourself to be able to investigate this for 30-plus years and still be active. Well, it never goes away. It just it tends to hopscotch around. Um, we had a complete cessation of cases, uh, for the most part, in Colorado in 99. And it wasn't until 2007 that we even had potential cases. I think the cases that were um, sensationalized uh, in 2007, 2008 were questionable. They may not have been true mutilations. 
but um, there was one classic mute in uh, 2010. And um, there's been very little uh, in North America generally. Um, and in Southern Colorado, where I you know, was focusing my investigative efforts, there's been uh, very, very few. Uh, in about 2002, uh, cases all of a sudden started boiling up in, in Argentina and Brazil. And uh, as soon as they eradicated a really nasty uh, outbreak of uh, hoof and mouth disease, they had just gotten that under control. All the animals uh, in the herds down there were inoculated, and boom, they started having the, the mutilation reports uh, uh, came pouring in. And uh, it's been sporadic, but it's ebbed and flowed uh, fairly consistently uh, ever since then. So for for 20, you know, almost 20 years, we've been dealing with uh, mutilation cases south of the border. And uh, we've been uh, lucky and escaped the wrath of the uh, mutilators for the most part. We've had, uh, we've had cases, but it, it, it leads to the question of, <laughs> you know, uh, like if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to noise, I think a lot of these ranchers are not reporting cases now. I think they realize there's it's, there's no upside for uh, revealing that you, your ranch has had cases. Uh, I think that there's a stigma attached to to having these um, things occur to your herd. Uh, it's 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 something that people are I think uh, are freaked out. And maybe even in some way, shape, or form, ashamed of, and so the. I would say nine out of ten animals that are found in uh, a classic mutilation uh, state, nine out of ten are dragged off to a bone pile, burned, buried, um, out of sight, out of mind, and uh, the rancher doesn't communicate to uh, his neighbors, to the law enforcement. Uh, it's just kind of in, within the family that knows about it. And sometimes even the rancher hides it from his own family. So um, when it's very difficult to get your your arms around something that um, is, uh, is is so ingeniously designed to be self negating, <laughs> um, and we can talk about that a little more later. But uh, I, I really have a sense that this is an ongoing and uh, a fairly consistent uh, manifestation of a blood based paranormal mystery. And uh, it is the only blood-based paranormal mystery if that, that, that we really can prove, uh, other than vampirism, which is there's some question how real that is. Um, the only other possible uh, manifestation uh, like this that's, that concerns uh, blood and tissue and biology is the stigmata uh, phenomenon which happens to mainly christian saints um they develop the wounds of christ they often uh bleed during particular holy days and uh, the the blood has a smell of roses um oftentimes um and these these are very rare examples of a manifestation uh of you know deep piety and faith but uh, the cattle mutilation phenomenon really is the only one, <laughs> the only mystery that leaves behind thousands of pounds of physical evidence. And that's, that's probably the main thing that uh, is very tantalizing, at least in my mind, is that we're dealing with something that is, is leaving behind evidence and taunting us at the same time. And... Uh, you know, you could go to a haunted site and, and hope for the best uh, or sit out and sky watch and hope that something flies by. When you have a cattle mutilation case, you can go and you can kick it. Uh, you can uh, take samples from it. You can autopsy it. You can, uh, you know, uh, have a crime scene investigation because there's something left behind. So uh, I think it's a, it's a very dark subject in our western closet mutilations primarily occur in christian countries uh they primarily occur uh, to small ranching operations with less than a thousand cattle 
And uh, like I said, I, I think only 10% of these cases are actually reported. What kind of equipment would a person need to drain a 3,000-pound bull or cow of all no, I think you brought up, uh, you know, a whole – it's a whole subject that kind of is a little bit um, irritating uh, to me, and that is the way that certain memes have been uh, – propagated relating to the mutilation phenomenon laser cuts cookie cutter incisions drained of blood no tracks no evidence these are generalizations that in some cases aren't accurate um in other in other other others of them are but the drained of blood one is is something that i found over um, about a 10-year period of investigating close to 200 cases, uh, very few of them were drained of blood. Uh, when you go out and you see one of these cases, say it's been dead anywhere from a number of hours to, uh, let's say, a week, uh, if you look down at the animal laying on the ground and gravity has pulled all the constituent elements of the blood and and uh, and viscera and, and all the liquid elements of the body, the hemoglobin, uh, the, the red blood cells, they're all drawn to the bottom of the carcass by gravity. And if you're looking down, you cut into the meat, you're not going to see any bleeding. You're not going to see any evidence that there's blood in the carcass unless you turn the thing over. And uh, I don't know how many times, it's been at least a dozen times, the rancher has said, they drained my cow. You know, what could possibly do that? And I said, here, give me a hand. And we go ahead and, you know, muscle the thing over. And whoosh, all the constituent elements that haven't uh, evaporated, the thick gelatinous material left behind uh, comes all, you know, <laughs> de decorating the prairie. Uh, especially in, in, you know, arid areas, semi-arid areas, you're going to have a quick uh, wicking away and uh, the environment's going to suck away a lot of the, the pure um, H2O and leave behind the thicker uh, uh, cellular elements, uh, which are going to gather in the very bottom of the body cavity. And unless you're, you're digging around down there and looking uh, you, if you, you just standing there looking down and not really digging into it, you're not going to find it. And so you just assume that it's been drained of blood. Uh, and, you know, I have had cases that were drained of blood, absolutely, where the blood, when you cut into it, or the meat, rather, um, is just has a barely pink color or doesn't have any color at all and is gray. That's when you know the thing has been drained. Uh most of these cases uh, are not drained. So as a new investigator, let's say I, I get called out on one of these sites and it's I, I first arrived there. What advice would you give me? Like, what should be my approach towards my investigation towards an animal like this? First, figure out which way the wind's blowing. And uh, that is, of course, if you're arriving at an inopportune time to really do anything, which is most of the time. Usually these, these animals aren't found for at least a couple days, um, sometimes three, four days. And by the time you get there, if it's, you know, in the warmer months, uh, you're going to have cadaverine in the necrotic process, uh, making its presence known. So I would <laughs> always suggest approaching from the upwind side. Um, I would have the animal covered with some sort of tarp or something until you can get there, tell the rancher to, to cover it and cordon off the area around the animal, at least like a hundred foot circle around the animal with uh, construction tape or something that indicates, uh, uh, you know, like a crime scene uh, perimeter. And then um, have one way into the animal and one way out on the upwind side. Um, you want to bring vials. You want to bring formalin, which is a 
better version of formaldehyde, which is the old uh, original way that they would suspend tissues in a solution. Uh, now it's formalin. Uh, it's a little easier to, to handle. Um, you need to get it from, from some sort of uh, like a mortuary supply place. Um, and then you need a really sharp knife. It's not by accident that we like to make shoes <laughs> out of cows hide because it's so tough. And uh, if you have a place to send forensic samples, or even if you don't, you'll want to grab samples of the incisional area, um, little squares about three inches by three inches, maybe uh, two and a half by two and a half, and uh, suspend them in containers with formalin tape them shut, put your name on it to make sure that the thing isn't monkeyed with. And then if you have a biophysical laboratory and you're involved in a study, you're going to have to go out in the four directions from the animal uh, and collect plant and soil samples out to 100 feet uh, and then control samples in each direction. To properly do an investigation collecting plant and soil samples and forensic samples and doing a proper examination of the crime scene can take up to two days to do um, if it's done properly. As far as the formal formaldehyde is concerned, how long is the uh, preservation of uh, the tissue? Indefinitely. It'll last forever. Yeah. yeah. If you have to use alcohol, like rubbing alcohol, uh, the samples will last a week, maybe 10 days in alcohol, but uh, informal and they'll last virtually forever. Forever. Okay. And then you were mentioning the plant samples. Uh, uh, do you want to do that like, you know, north, east, southwest position you want from all four corners? Yeah, all the way out at, at the body, you know, out of foot. Um, out two feet, out five feet, out 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, and 50. And just gradually go out uh, from the animal and then go all the way out um, to 100, 150 feet. And then all the way for a control sample, you can go, you know, quarter mile, half mile. But in, in the four directions, you do this. And as far as the sampling size, like, are we talking like a teaspoon? Um, yeah, a little bit more, uh, you know, a baggie, a baggie full of plant and soil. And it's got to be labeled, you know, you know, east, uh, plus five feet, east plus, you know, 10 feet, whatever, uh, come up with a, with an easy. And always best to do that prior, you know, do all your, your sample bag labeling, uh, before you do that particular stream going out in that direction so you do you know label all your east ones and then fill up your your samples going out and then you know label all your north ones and south and west you know and then uh it, it just makes it easier to to to, to uh properly uh gain your samples i was involved in a um in a study in 1998 that uh coincidentally was <laughs> covered by a tv show from from uh the bbc and you know, actually a, a comedy show uh it wasn't very many people i was the only one laughing during the segment because of how grossed out the uh english uh hoity-toity reporters were uh, comedians uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, it was part of a study, uh, the bo bovine excision site study, and I forget how many uh, cases were in there, probably 25, 30 maybe, maybe even more. I forget. It's been so long since I've looked at it. But uh, my, my uh, particular case that uh, was <laughs> completely documented um, uh, turned out to be uh, one of the most, no if not the most notable case in the entire study, we had uh, evidence of melted magnetite right around the animal. Uh, three to, f I think, 400 times the amount of magnetite was right around the body. 
And it, it stayed at fairly consistent high levels out to about 50 feet. And then it, it fell to control levels. But the, the, the event that happened there seems to have attracted, you know, one to five micron uh, pieces of meteoritic dust and, uh, you know, ferrous, ferrous metals, in, you know, in the soil. Very, very small uh, uh, you know, th- one to three microns, one to five micron pieces of magnetite, and they uh, they were in sphericals, um, as if they had been melted in a in a heat event, and uh, in a actually uh, melted in a heat event in a in potentially in a negative uh, gravity uh, state. So I mean, there's really not a biophysicist and a, you know a um, materials scientist but based on what I remember Levin, uh, Dr. Levengood or actually W.C. Levengood uh, the scientist who did the actual uh, lab work uh, he said that uh, it was highly unusual the amount of magnetite and he said that there was some sort of magnetic event that occurred because um, he had uh, magnetite attracted to what appeared to be uh, very, very small pieces of magnetized vegetable matter. And on one little piece of of, uh, plant, uh, he had a rudimentary uh, quartz crystal growing um, that had happened uh, subsequent to the event occurring. And um, it it was quite noteworthy. Uh, It's impossible to explain by coyotes or birds or um some weird um sicko that's going around doing this to cows uh that just cannot in any interpretation uh, uh explain the science that was discovered you know the scientific properties that were discovered uh with the sampling and uh the the basic theory, I guess, or hypothesis was that there was some sort of plasma vortex and a high heat sort of a microwave event that occurred to the cow. Um, you would think right around the time that it was uh, that it died and then was subsequently disfigured. But uh, <laughs> Louis Thoreau, the reporter. <laughs> I tell you, he 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 was not prepared for uh, his probably one and only cattle mutilation investigation. He uh, he was definitely out of his element. <laughs> oh, really? So th- was he was he live like on scene with you then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, with a, with a film crew, and then they broadcast this segment on the on Sunday night on the BBC. It was you know it was a, it was a big show. Louis Thoreau's Weird Weekends. As a matter of fact, uh, I just uh, did an interview with him a couple of months ago celebrating the 25th anniversary of his show. And he went back uh, and, and touched bases with his favorite episodes. He was, he was on for years. And he said I was one of the top you know, two or three episodes that he remembered that he wanted to, uh, to, to do a, you know, a follow-up. So I was, I was a little bit... Uh, you know, gratified to hear that at least I was entertaining, you know. I was cracking the jokes, you know, at his expense. He was puking in his hand and, you know, the cow's anus was bubbling, these big gas bubbles, and the the rancher's dog came running up and started licking the blood out of the excised eye socket. And, oh, he just, oh, you know, he'd never even been in a pasture, I think. Uh, let alone been out in you know thirty five degrees and a forty mile an hour steady wind, uh, it was brutal. Uh, yeah, there have been strange odors. I've only had one case that uh, that I noted something uh, like a medicinal smell, something antiseptic. Uh, I had one my weirdest case uh, had that feature, uh, and the original case that happened back in September sixty seven. Uh, the first real internationally notorious case, the Snippy the Horse case, which happened there in the San Luis Valley where I, I was running around. Uh, it had a smell of like a, a medicinal perfume or um, a medicinal kind of incense. Uh, 
It was a musky, a musky kind of medicine smell. Like when you're at the hospital? Yeah, he said it was different. Um, uh, Burl Lewis, the, the wife or the husband of the owner of the horse was still alive when I got involved. And one of the first things I did was interview him, uh, videotape an interview. And he said that there was a, he said it didn't smell like formaldehyde. He said it didn't smell like sanitizer, but he said it was a medicinal smell. And it was it had kind of a earthy, sort of musky quality to it. What I do to you know to deal with the smell is I, I I have a little bottle of Vicks Vapor Rub and I just I stick a little bit of that under my nose. I've had some cases where I've had to burn my clothes. Uh, my my wife has forced me to take a cold shower with the hose outside. Um, it is my least favorite thing that I've ever done in my life, and um, I moved to a state that doesn't have mutilations. Um, as as a result, <laughs> <laughs> have you gone full vegan? <laughs> uh, no, I actually I love beef. Um, I I like buffalo better, but bison. But um, yeah, I, I I still eat beef. But you know, I got to know where it comes from. I have to know that it's organic. It's good range, free range. That there's no antibiotics. There's no growth hormones. Uh, there's no um, you know grain. That they're, they're grass-fed. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't eat industrialized. I don't eat industrialized uh, meat protein like McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, and you were mentioning uh, the first time we had uh, communicated that human, uh, not human blood. Well, human blood is very similar to cow, but that you've noticed it's virtually identical. Yeah, and that the. Uh, or seems to be that all these big manufacturers that uh, have cattle like in the hundreds of thousands, uh, none of them seem to be uh, mutilated. No. It seems to be the free, uh, free range cows that are more targeted. Well, it's uh, it's cows that aren't on you know massed together ten by the tens of thousands in in really unsanitary feedlots. Um, it's cattle that are um, that are free range and generally are are. In areas that are real remote and um, not visited by uh, people from outside the uh, community. In other words, you're not, you know, it's pretty rare to find something on an interstate, you know, a cattle mute case right along a, on a freeway. Although it has happened. We've had a case in Houston where it was found in a, the drive up of a, of a bank, the drive up window. And when I came in the next morning, there was a mutilated cow there. Yeah. I had case in, uh, of a cow that uh, was very unusual. The side of its neck and head were totally denuded of flesh. It was like half half of Snippy. Uh, the Snippy case, the whole neck, the whole head was, was, the brain was gone and everything. This cow was only half of it. But it was found in a locked potato barn. And there were cobwebs and stuff on the lock. <laughs> The, nobody had been in that barn in quite a while, and they just happened to find it because it started smelling. Yeah, because I know in England they're they're having that problem with uh, the horses, or is it France with the the horses right now? Well, they both. Uh, it, it was England. It was England last year and the year before. This year it's France. Yeah. Um, there are die-offs of animals that are are very mysterious and unexplained. Uh, it's like uh, similar to you know why do fifty whales or dolphins decide to beach themselves? Um, uh, we've had thousands of birds that have fallen from the sky with, for no apparent reason, uh, and uh, it's it's becoming more and more commonplace to have. Uh, fairly large groups of birds dying off uh, simultaneously. And uh, that's a little troubling, I think, to to some naturalists um, who think that uh, it could be a combination of everything from um, cell phone transmissions uh, in microwaves uh, to uh, compromised uh, food sources um, and pollution, uh, you know, chemicals in the air and uh, 
the changing of the Earth's magnetic field. So if um, the uh, for the person who's going to pick up your book, um, which is called Stalking the Herd, as an investigator, what are the, is this something I'm going to want to bring out to me with me in a field? Uh, and, and that it can make reference to. Well, it's no, it's it's not really. It's more of a. Uh, it's like I said, it's a case history and an examination of the context uh, within which the case history exists. It's looking at the culture of beef as a protein source for human nutrition, and how that practice has. Um, you know, become <laughs> a 500-pound gorilla that's uh, sitting in the in the room that nobody wants to talk about. It's one of the the, the most taboo closet subjects in in the, the Western world. Uh, the cattle lobby is one of the largest, most powerful groups of business people in the Western world, and yet you never hear about them unless you're Oprah and you say on your show, you blurt out after hearing about mad cow disease, you blurt out, well, I'll never eat another hamburger again. And the following day she got sued for a billion dollars or I think $2 billion. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. They slapped a suit on her like the next day. What was their beef? Uh, it's what's for dinner beef. It's what's for dinner. Uh, so, you know, the whole power of, Big Agro uh, is derived from its uh, most lucrative uh, cash producers, and that would be beef. Beef is the largest income producer in agro agro business, and uh, it's not by accident that uh, uh, you know because of the way that we are are mishandling the raising and and culling of livestock, um, we are slowly degrading, uh, you know, some serious um, systems on our planet, uh, natural systems. Cattle are the largest uh, source of freshwater pollution. They're the largest source of methane-depleting gases, uh, way more than all the uh, factories and cars and boats and ships and planes combined. Um, they're the largest source of uh, the natural creation of deserts. Um, they're the largest, uh, the main reason why we're cutting down and burning our rainforests so we can make room for more cattle. Um, they harbor incredibly virulent diseases, rinderpest, um, stomatitis, uh, you know, anthrax, uh, mad cow, you know, prion disease, which is, uh, you know, the most devastating disease that's yet been discovered. Uh, the, the, cattle is not, they're not designed to be kept in one spot. They're designed like buffalo to move over the land. And if they're allowed to migrate and move naturally over the environment, they're actually very good for the environment. But if you keep them in one place and you have them standing around in a foot and a half to two feet of feces and urine, uh, you have to get them, you have to pump up their uh, immune systems and pump them full of antibiotics so they don't get sick. You have to pump them full of grain and supplements so that they aren't there for very long, that you can put weight on them really fast and get them get them slaughtered. Uh, and, you know, for one pound of beef, it takes 450 gallons of water to produce. If uh, if those cows are in those kind of states and those big industrial farms, do you think that's one of the reasons why they're not being selected or not being found mutilated is that they're almost like diseased? I have no idea. Um, I think that... Uh, well, I, I can't say I don't have any idea. My, my guess would be, let's put it that way, or my informed, my informed uh, opinion would be that that's telling us that it's not specifically the cow, particular cow that's important. It's where it is in the environment. And so those areas of the environment um, are not, they're not part of some sort of study that's going on. Um, this seems very, very methodical. It seems very 
uh, you know, there's it's consistent in many ways. Uh, it seems fairly um, um, predictable in terms of what organs are taken. Uh, you know, the the, the crime scene uh, it looks like it wasn't the original crime scene. The animals have been returned, dropped in another part of the field. So it always appears like there's no tracks or, or clues. Uh, if this is some sort of environmental sampling, uh, to you know, for whatever reasons, whether it's it's uh, pr- prospecting for heavy metals or oil, whether it's um, looking for um, environmental pollutants, uh, whether it be above ground radiation fallout, uh, whether it's um, looking for the effect of uh, fissionable materials in the environment. We notice downwind and downstream of where we utilize uranium and plutonium, nuclear power plants, uranium mines, weapons enrichment facilities, uh, missile bases with uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, If you go downwind and downstream, from where these uh, locations are, uh, that those are areas of high incidence uh, for cattle mutilations, especially in the uh, the Rocky Mountains and in the Midwest. As you get further east, it, that that drops off, but so does the pollution, so does the radiation that was deposited by a hundred above ground nuclear tests during the fifties and sixties. Seems to change from animals too, because they find bison like this, like you mentioned, dolphins. They just there's weird states that animals are found that doesn't make any sense yeah yeah that's why i think that that it's 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 a multifarious uh there's no one group that's doing this there's no one reason why these animals are being taken and what animals are taken what species are taken uh there's multiple groups involved in this and they they all have their own uh agenda and they're basically or agendas uh, you know plural and they they appear to be picking back piggybacking their agenda on top of the others to try to keep the uh try to keep the attention and the uh culpability pointed elsewhere rather than on themselves so that would indicate to me that we're dealing with uh with multiple agendas and multiple groups that that's the only way you can possibly explain uh the totality of this particular mystery it it doesn't matter what you come up with if you think it's aliens um, that's only 10% of the data. There's 90% of the data that that says that it can't be aliens because there's so many other cases that, that don't fall into that 10%. If you think it's only predators and then it's all hysteria, um, there's cases that absolutely prove that to be erroneous. Sure, some cases maybe, uh, you know, when waves get really big and, and the news coverage is out there and people you know, are aware that dead cows are being found in a strange condition. So every amateur that sees a dead cow doesn't know what he's looking at, thinks he's seeing a mutilation. So there's there's some societal manipulation going on. Um, I have cases where large ranchers are trying to buy out smaller ranchers around them, and they use the mutilation uh, mystery as a, as a terror tactic. And they try to drive these guys out of business by mutilating their livestock. Um, I had one rancher in 75, uh, October 75, Emilio Lobato, he lost 49 head in two weeks and they were mutilated, shot or stolen. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You could have a large rancher terrorizing his neighbors to try to, you know, try to acquire their land drive them out of business. 70 to 80% of the ranches that were hit by mutilators in the 70s when it was really a problem, especially in the Midwest and Rockies, 70 to 80% of those ranches are gone and in their stead are giant factory-owned uh, ranching operations. It's like cowboy gangsters, right? Moving in, wiping out all the competition. You know, but that's that doesn't that doesn't that that one size fits all answer doesn't work. It only works for a num you know for a percentage of cases. There's cases that we think are bacteriological weapons uh, experiments by by the um, by the military. There there are cases that appear to be some sort of ritual, uh, some sort of um, you know blood based uh, sacrificial magic. Um, there are cases that appear to be 
completely unexplainable um, that are, uh, and they're the ones that are rarest uh, and also the ones that are most likely not to be reported. But uh, it's, it's the ultimate whodunit mystery, really. Uh, And I was just very, very fortunate to meet the main people involved in trying to research this whole phenomenon and, um, and, and, become the one guy that really was on speaking terms with all the others <laughs> and they'd allow me to use their data which i very you know judiciously uh credited everybody of course and i i combined all these databases together to try to come up with an overall uh feel of the width and breadth of how the outbreaks went from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. And so that's what the book is. And it's bookended by, you know, our relationship with cattle. And uh, it's, I'll tell you, I got 93 ratings and 70, I think 6% of them are five star. (laughs) I'm like 4.5 or 4.6 out of five stars, which is pretty rare. Uh, you're always going to have at least, you know, you know, a peanut gallery that's going to try to bring you down. But, uh, um, I was very gratified by, uh, you know, by the reception of the book, by the few people that actually, you know, are interested enough to, in their health and in their environment and in, in these mysterious type subjects that, uh, you know, they're interested enough to, to become, educated and and to become aware of something that could be the greatest unsolved serial crime spree of all time you know <laughs> exactly a cover-up that uh it's been spanning a very very long time although i think because there's more people now it's more prevalent that we have the information shared so fast with the internet being what it is you know we could share this a lot faster or at least find out the news about it a lot faster than we could in the past and it's more of an open subject now But with the recent developments that um, is happening with the Senate and forming that special task force uh, to assemble all the information from all the different departments and to start looking into the UFO phenomenon or disclosing it, whatever that means in political terms, you know, because who knows, like they say that, but it's not going to be flat out honesty. Uh, No, they're just trying to, they're trying to steer the narrative and trying to get back in front of the of the uh, conversation, which they've never really tried before. That's why what that's what makes this particular development uh, that much more intriguing. They're actually they seem to care now. For seventy years, they didn't care really publicly. Different different groups though, because people that are in Senate now are my age, like thirty nine, you know, forty two. Like they grew up with Star Wars and ET and. Maybe some of them have had sightings. If not them, then their family members have had sightings. So they're a lot more open to the idea, concept, if not the subject of are we alone and are they here? But it's an issue with our species, Christopher, is that we're we're very tribal. So every tribe, and by the big tribes, I mean countries, because that's all it is. Every tribe's trying to keep the information and or technology discovered secret or purposes of killing their opponents because that's what we do that's what our species does right we're primates and that's a problem because we're not sharing any of the information worldwide we're all trying to hoard it as if one of us someday is going to discover the secret formula and have the upper hand and that's just well it's all it's yeah it's all it's all greed and 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 the motives and motivations are all self-serving uh obviously the technology is is the I mean that's that's the the motivation. I think the primary motivation is uh, is to make discoveries and uh, and uh, you know increase our knowledge about exotic propulsion and and uh, you know the types of uh, apparent time compression that seems to be going on with these events. Um, um, you know suspension of natural you know physical laws that sort of thing. You know, you you dangle these types of of things in front of a physicist or some sort of you know military weapons designer, and these guys they you know they they jizz all over themselves in excitement. 
Who doesn't? <laughs> well, maybe back in high school or something. <laughs> talk a little bit about Skycam, because I know we were going to keep that for another episode, but did you want to tackle a little bit of that today? Well, yeah, the uh, the UFO DAP project, which is the UFO data acquisition project, which is a fancy name for a group of sensors and really state-of-the-art cameras that are um, integrated into a holistic um, setup so that you can um, get multiple uh, multiple uh, groups of data and then uh, bounce them off one another uh, in true scientific fashion. It's the scientific method applied to ufology. So what we have is a triangulated camera array um, that's connected by the internet. And um, we also have uh, recording magnetometer, uh, recording gravitometers or accelerometers, uh, 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 radio frequency spectrum analyzer, and and a number of other uh, potential um, plug-in type um, sensing equipment. And uh, basically, if you set this thing up, um, it's going to um, utilize uh, custom software. Um, Ron Olch, our engineer and designer, he, he wrote over 63,000 lines of code to create the, uh, the mission control software. Um, and again, the system can be um, a remote system. You know, uh, I mean, you can literally uh, power, uh, power it with solar. Um, so it can be portable. It can be something that you can uh, take a uh, you know, quick dispatch to a hotspot area. Um, what we're doing is we're, um, we're, we're setting up a system in the San Luis Valley where I, I did my, um, the bulk of my investigative work. And so we, we, we have one camera currently that's been operating for a year. And what we've been doing is allowing the software to train itself um, with an AI deep learning program. And so uh, the camera is becoming really good at discerning between objects. What we do is we, um, we allow it to play around with existing databases and integrate that sort of um, identification uh, co- capabilities into, into our um, software program. And uh, so <clears throat> basically how it works is uh, let's say an object appears and um, you either detect it with an all-sky cam, which is a fisheye camera that um, can see from horizon to horizon. Um, you either detect it with one of those or it flies into the field of view of any where from one to six cameras. The nearest camera identifies the object as an anomalous, and then it uh, attaches, it, it creates a file, a folder, and the actual proximity data is then instantly sent from one camera to the other cameras so that they all know where in the sky the anomaly is located. So they all whip around, pan, tilt, zoom, they whip around, and they focus in on the object as well. Um, So we have detection of motion. We have uh, motion tracking, which is like a, a targeting bounding box that zeroes in on the object, and no matter where it goes, uh, that box stays, you know, trained on it. And so the, the closest camera zooms in, the other cameras um, stay further out. Um, all the equipment goes into a record mode and the um, magnetometers, gravitometers. Uh, we also have a complete uh, weather uh, atmospheric platform with, you know, barometer, temperature, wind speed, all that. Um, and all this uh, information is recorded and, it is um, what I'd like to do is have the camera actually go from its normal standard def um, to 4K uh, would be the ideal. If we can find uh, locations that have the bandwidth, it would be great to be able to then, you know, have a 4K image uh, at least one of the cameras. So all this information is being collected real time uh, while it's going on and immediately emails are sent out to whomever is on the list to be uh, contacted in case of a, of a real-time event. And then that person could immediately log in, check out the, the, uh, the situation, call other people, get more eyes on, uh, you know, on the screens. 
so it does have an early uh, warning or alert system as well. Th- this is how you do science. If we can get an object and get all those different data points uh, and a string of data points and then re- repeat that, have another event and have a, you know, a second set of numbers, um, I mean, you, that's, that's, that's good science. Uh, that's uh, repeatability. Uh, that's something that you could, uh, you know, write a paper with the help of a physicist or, you know, an optical physicist or um, someone who would be interested in that particular event uh, whose, you know, scientific uh, credentials would then allow them to, uh, you know, to present it to the uh, scientific community at large. Um, I think we've come to a place now where the technology is, is affordable we are designing these systems so that uh, anybody can get one. Uh, we're not doing this and marking everything up. We're getting everything at cost. Uh, we're making a little bit of money to, to pay Ron back for all his development work on the software. But the software is automatically updated um, if, um, if, you get, um, if you get the system. So we have different systems for different applications. We have um, the entry-level systems are around $400, and the top-of-the-line um, system without radar, without uh, infrared, is about 5000 So um, this is really exciting. I mean, uh, it would cost uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this 20 years ago when I was thinking first thinking about it. And uh, this is uh, the result of a 12-year uh, <laughs> odyssey. Uh, it's been very difficult to pull this off, and uh, and I'm I'm very very proud of uh, of my you know recently departed uh, partner Wayne Hollenbeck, and uh, of course Ron, our engineer. Um, we're now working with UFO Data, which is a group um, that's um, associated with Kufos and I think um, Ohio State University. They're going to be helping us with the analytical side of the data. Obviously, it's one thing to gather all the numbers. Uh, it's another thing to crunch them and figure out what's going on. So um, this is exciting. This is historic. Uh, yeah, I, I scold people all the time for calling me a ufologist, and uh, I'm not a ufologist. I do not want to be lumped in with those people. Uh, but if I was a ufologist, I would be working with a group of people on a project like UFODAP. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, eight inches by eight inches by eight inches with a camera that's about a foot that's on top of it in a, a dome. They're completely protected by the uh, by the environmental enclosures. They're protected from the weather. They go from 120 degrees uh, Fahrenheit down to 20 below. Um, we figured out ways to keep birds from landing on them uh, uh, and crapping on, on the domes. Is there a certain altitude that you would recommend that these go? Like, can you just have them on ground level when you're doing the sky watch? Well, ideally, uh, on a cell tower, you know, at least 60 feet up in the air so you're above all the trees. Uh, that's the ideal. In the San Luis Valley, you really don't have to worry about it that much because it's flat as a board and you can see 300 miles. So uh, it's not an issue there. But, you know, anywhere else where there's trees and, and stuff, you, you want to have a... A, you know, a percentage of the sky that's that's uncluttered and and uh, you know doesn't have any obstructions. Um, that's why I said that we customize our systems for people. You may not need a pan tilt zoom camera for one part of your project. You may go with a less expensive camera that's fixed that has a ninety to hundred degree uh, you know field of view. Um, because if, if it doesn't need to go behind it because there's trees, let's say. So, you know, we, we try to put together and we, well, we're actually doing a pretty good job putting together the least expensive system that covers, uh, your particular, you know, environment and, and, uh, environmental situation and, um, is within your budget. So we have one going in next to uh, Skinwalker Ranch. We have one already on the coast in San Pedro on Southern LA we have one up in the Wasatch in uh, in Utah, in the Wasatch Mountains. Uh, we have one 
going in in uh, Paradise Valley, which is east of uh, Phoenix. We have interest from Australia, from Italy. You know, we've made a, a little bit of, of noise. We haven't really pushed it yet until we really feel confident that, um, you know, we're, we're fully operational. We're really looking for that beta, those beta events to, uh, uh, you know, to, to learn from and to tweak the gear. Um, we're right at the end of the uh, learning curve for for the cameras, for the, you know, the, the, the AI process. So um, we're ready to rock, you know, and I was supposed to go out in uh, May and June and put up the other two cameras and uh, we were supposed to go up to Utah and put one in up there. And, and you know, this COVID thing just, you know, I, I'm losing a whole year of my life. <laughs> with this. Some people aren't, but I am. Oh my God! Yeah, I had to cancel what three conferences. Uh, uh, I was supposed to appear, you know, and, and, and do my thing, and you know, I had a bunch of shoots for TV shows. Yeah, it's just what can you do? It's always freaking something. Subject is coming around with the general public. I think as that you know, since 2017 at least, people have been a lot more open to the discussion of it, and I think the more honest. I am with people about my absolute, you know, uh, believability in the phenomenon. Uh, it makes them at ease. And then they start talking to me about it. And I realize, you know, probably one out of 10 people have had some sort of incident. Uh, so it's, it's occurring. So for me, it's past being phenomenon stage. It's an occurrence uh, because phenomenon would be, be rare. It's not rare. This is a, a, a daily fucking thing, you know, like it's everywhere every day. Yeah. Non-stop, whether it's the cattle or the yeah. sightings, yeah, which which every which is perfect, uh, you know, ammunition for any theories to explain who these people are piloting these craft um, as being anywhere but out there. I mean, it's like they live here already. Yeah, yeah, they're here and they've been here a long time by the looks of things. Probably longer than we have. Yeah, if you listen to the ancient ancient uh, alien uh, folks, they've been here forever. But I mean, that shows just recycled stuff at this point they really ran out of subjects a while back after the fourth season <laughs> it dried right up it's like uh now you're just rehashing stuff we've already been over it's called milking the cow milking the cow exactly <laughs> as long as there's viewers let's just keep giving them what they want uh look we put ketchup on it it's different <laughs> Yeah, if anybody out there is interested in UFODAP and you want to know more, just go to UFO, D is in data, A is in acquisition, P is in program, uh, UFODAP.com. And there's complete technical information about all the gear. There's all the different cameras. There's all the different um, sensing um, arrays. Uh, you can look at the different ways to mount these things or put them on tripods. Uh, and there's some some good videos on there that show you exactly how the thing works. Uh, everything is plotted in, in uh, Google Maps, uh, so you have height, uh, you know, altitude, distance uh, away, speed, um, azimuth. All these things are um, generated by the triangulation process. Um, this is the future yeah and it would help a lot for people like i mean this gear wasn't around when you were doing this 30 years ago i mean how helpful would that have been back in the day right well the gear was around it's just the quality that uh the money you would have to pay to get something high definition um well high def wasn't even really available 20 years ago but um and 25 years ago but when it did come out, you know, you would have to pay thousands of dollars for a camera. Now, it's on your phone. Keep it steady, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you hold hold the damn thing horizontal. Not so much the case for calculation because you don't get to film those. But uh, one day, maybe somebody will with some of these cameras that are becoming available now. Including your no, I've got plenty of video dead cows. <laughs> Well, you got plenty of dead cows. So catching the little buggers in, in the act that that would be uh, that would be a great video. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, coming back on and doing this uh, second take. All right, cool man. Yeah.